breeders, producers, and creating better chickens. So there was a driver to have chickens in the first place because there was a market for them. And there was a driver around a show competition system which resulted in a structure which supported how to breed, what to breed, how breeds differed from each other, what good uh, representatives of a breed might look like, and so on. An interview with Margaret Derry. I'm Sean Karaj, and you're listening to episode 36 of Nature's Past, the sixth part of our special series, Histories of Canadian Environmental Issues. So I'm joined once again by our assistant producers, Andrew Watson Hi. and Stacey Nation-Kanapper. Hi. And we are dealing with our fifth Canadian environmental issue. And once again, we're going to deal with this in two parts. On this episode and our next episode, we're looking at uh, issues related to uh, what we'll call agri-food systems in Canada, the uh, relationships between the producers of food and the consumers of food, Uh, And we're going to be looking at uh, how uh, environmental history uh, can inform perspectives uh, on challenges that we face in the present associated with Canada's agri-food system. Um, So maybe, uh, Stacey, if you can start us off and giving us a little bit of a sense of what it's like to farm uh, today. We've been doing a little bit of reading about what uh, 21st century farming is like in Canada. Sure. Um, Well, first and foremost, it seems like there's a considerable disconnect between um, what the consumers of food and the producers of food, what the consumers know about the producers of their food. And um, the scale of Canadian farming has changed drastically in the last last century or so. Um, And even more so in the last couple of decades as Canadian exports of agricultural products have increased and um, the uh, farmers have begun to uh, to farm larger acreage, uh, many more acres, um, but fewer farmers are doing so. Right. So, for example, in Alberta, uh, in 2011, uh, that's this is the most acreage of of Alberta that's been under agricultural production in Canadian history as of 2011, but the smallest or fewest number of farmers. Right. And so these. Um, smaller number of farmers have taken on greater acreage, but they're also then taking on um, greater expense because to farm these larger larger farms, they need um, more equipment, they need increased irrigation, they need more seeds, and uh, so along with that increased expense for some, for many, comes uh, increased debt as well. So um, the scale of the entire um, agricultural process has just gotten bigger and bigger. It's become industrialized in a lot of ways. Right. Like the efficiency and productivity seems to be like the name of the game. It's it's about generating profits to a large extent, way more than it ever has been before. Right. Before Make more food cheaper. More right. food cheaper, exactly. And uh, I mean, agriculture has always sort of been like the foundations for Canadian settlement and, and, and economy to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. But increasingly, it's far more about this sort of globalized system of being able to justify enormous operations with a lot of inputs, uh, which do generate great major incomes for farming families and for farming operations. But a lot of those incomes get rolled back into these operations. And so it's sort of like a perpetual uh, growth-based industry to a large extent that that uh, the, the idea of, 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 of generating these commodities is far more about commerce than it is necessarily about feeding people and feeding people is sort of like the 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 justification and the corollary of these of these of sort of the changes right and and the focus um, 
because of that has become on become efficiency. And so, how can、uh, how can farmers then get the most yield for the least amount of seeds, the least amount of、um, water, the least amount of fertilizer,、um, so that there's more output with less input,、um, keeping the farming. And now, ecologically, part of that process of the industrialization of agriculture in North America and globally in the 20th century has involved、um, uh, increasing dependence on fossil fuels and increasing dependence on chemical fertilizers, herbicides, and pesticides, and for、uh, livestock antibiotics. Uh, and、I'm, this presumably is not a cheap proposition. Again, so it makes the scale of agriculture that much more capital-intensive for farmers. Who、um, one article that we read、uh, said that it cost more than a couple of thousand dollars to uh, uh, spray a field with、uh, I think it was a pesticide、uh, of some kind,、um, or sorry, it was a herbicide、uh, on a field of wheat. Two thousand dollars just to do. And because of these increasing costs,、uh, the the sort of the, the model is increasingly about、uh, private enterprise, about、uh, large-scale corporations being involved in, in directing the sort of the the policy direction、mm-hmm. of、uh, of agriculture in Canada、mm-hmm. to a large extent, because all the inputs that are required to make this scale of agriculture viable. Really demands that the efficiencies are controlled at like the corporate level, at a very high level, rather than farmers necessarily being、uh, having having the control.、Uh, and this the this、level. is especially true at the level of breeding. So,、um, if we take again Alberta as our example, canola is a major field crop in Alberta、uh, today. Uh, so we may associate Alberta, even still in the present, with raising wheat as a as a primary、um, export crop. But canola is is taking up a bigger piece of that pie. But canola seeds can only be bought from large breeding companies like Monsanto that produce those seeds. Farmers can't reproduce or self、uh, harvest seeds from their canola plants. They have to go back to those breeding companies. So there is a changing relationship in terms of corporatization of agriculture in Canada as well. Yep, and that definitely has.、Um Some historians have noticed then that、uh, in the last several decades, because of this increased corporatization,、um, there's been a power shift from the producers as smaller-scale individual farmers to these、uh, multinational corporations in who controls、um, everything from who gets what seeds, when you get them, and、um, and where they go. Now, I want to ask you guys about the role of the state. What role does the federal government and Even the provinces play in our current、uh, agricultural system in Canada. Increasingly less of a role, I think.、Mm-hmm. I mean,、uh, the issue of the wheat board is a good example, but also、uh, government funding for research into agricultural、uh, science and technologies are increasingly moving. The, that funding is increasingly moving towards the private sector. The government is、uh, slowly divesting itself from the responsibility of. Of, of pushing policy, and policy seems to be more、uh, coming out of coming out of the, the interests of these multinational corporations. Right. So last year, the federal government、um, uh, passed legislation to eliminate the Canada Wheat Board, which was a state-operated,、uh, though、um, farmers had a stake in terms of the operations of the Can-、uh, Canadian Wheat Board. But it was a marketing board for wheat that now has been dissolved and.、Uh, Grain growers、uh, in in Canada,、uh, in Western Canada, now sell their grain on an open market. 
Yeah, and I think too, um, at the same time that the Canadian government is in some ways, as you said, divesting itself from regulatory responsibilities, it's also, the, the Canadian government is also very much um, active in pushing Canadian agricultural exports globally. And so um, just earlier, mar um, earlier in March, the Canadian agriculture minister was in Japan agreeing, um, uh, forming an agreement for export of Canadian wheat and Canadian beef. Um, with Canada, or with Japan, so at the same time that they might be that the Canadian government's um, reducing their role in regulation and research for agriculture, they're they are increasing their interest and um, support of export and and um, increased sale of Canadian agriculture products abroad. Seems like they are increasingly yeah. trying to make it possible for the market fluctuations, the supply and demand, to dictate yeah. how agriculture in Canada evolves and right. creating trade. Uh, opportunities and more trade opportunities for Canadian agriculture. It's really leaving it up to the market. So something like the wheat board is a sort of a inhibits the perhaps the potential from the government's perspective of creating these more globalized connections. So this is really interesting. So trade policy is where currently the federal government is most aggressive um, in terms of intervening in some kind of agricultural policy, but research and marketing the federal government seems to be stepping back from that role but this might not have always been the case in terms of the relationship between agriculturalists and the state and farming once in Canada wasn't uh, dominated by large-scale uh, industrial uh, operations um, and we can take a, a case study I think and look at um, the raising of animals as an example, and we've got a new book out uh, by Margaret Derry uh, that looks at the history of the breeding of chickens in North America that I think touches on a lot of these themes and explains uh, many of the processes by which processes of uh, the production of our food changed over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries. So we'll talk with Margaret Derry on this episode about her new book. I am Margaret Derry, and I am an associate professor with the University of Guelph History Department, and I am happy to answer some questions on my most recent book on chicken breeding. Thanks for joining us, Margaret. We're talking about your book, Art and Science in Breeding, Creating Better Chickens, uh, which is a history of uh, chicken breeding um, in North America, uh, mostly in the 19th and 20th centuries, but uh, with a uh, focus on uh, some global events that affected uh, this history. So I thought it might make sense to maybe start from the beginning to give listeners a little bit of, of a sense of the, the history of, of domestic chickens and humans' relationship with this animal. So could you let listeners know uh, when and, and why did humans first begin breeding and domesticating chickens? Well, that's a question that hasn't been entirely answered, but generally speaking, uh, scholars believe that the main area of domestication took place in the Indus Valley about 4,000 years ago. Um, now, genomics today suggests that domestic fowl resulted from a hybridizing of two wild species, the red and the gray jungle fowl. Uh, until a few years ago, Everyone felt it was only the rare jungle fowl that had gone into the makeup of domestic chickens, but we now believe that both did. The birds were generally used for ceremonial purposes and bred for cockfighting. They were not uh, food agents at all at this time. The Aryans took chickens about 3,500 years ago to Persia, and the Persians subsequently took them to Mesopotamia. And late in the 6th century, Persians and Medes 
uh, actually took them to Greece, and this is the most important move mm-hmm. for them because uh, when Greece became a province of, the, of Rome, the Romans took chickens basically all over the civilized world or the known world. Mm-hmm. And what we had was a, basically a chicken renaissance because the Romans quite quickly realized that chickens were a good supplier of food, especially when you have armies on the move. They're very transportable. Right. And they actually bred chickens for two specialized food types, a heavy meat bird, which went into what was later the Dorking, which was basically the meat bird of Britain until well into the 19th century, and another lighter bird that was an egg-laying bird. And I believe that actually this was probably um, early leghorns, which is interesting because the leghorn Mm -hmm. today, of course, still is the main producer of eggs worldwide. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, the Romans introduced these birds as food to these countries, but with the fall of Rome, we saw kind of what you might call a dark ages as far as chickens are concerned until the 19th century because they did not manage to establish birds as food animals in these countries. And it, uh, cockfighting was well known, say, in Britain before the Romans arrived. Julius Caesar in 55 BC found cockfighting. Uh, in that country, and we don't really know where those birds came from, but we suspect Iran. So there would have been probably two types of waves of chickens into the rest of Europe, uh, pre-Roman and Roman, and then there's sort of nothing happens until the 19th century. So a big dark period in terms of the use of chickens as a food animal then. That's right. Now we know we don't know much about markets, say, um, post-Roman times, but there's a little bit of evidence that by the 13th century, there was some marketing of chicken meat and eggs, and this would have been focused on the wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no real market at, other than uh, a little bit to wealthy people. Chickens were consumed at home. But they were ne- they never had much status, and then we're slowly getting into another huge issue in the poultry industry, which is gender, mm-hmm. and the fact that uh, um, poultry production was basically a woman's job. So it commanded little respect, and for many, many years, uh, no data was really collected on what was going on with chickens, and I think partially for that mm-hmm. reason. And now, in the American context, the chicken is not a native species to the Americas. The bird was introduced first by um, the Spanish? Uh, the Spanish and Portuguese hmm. and in South America. And there, we don't know, well, they would have been in the, the southern part of North America, but the main birds that were introduced into North America came with British settlers, um, the state of Virginia in 1608. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were quickly adopted by Native peoples. Mm-hmm. And they were used for food. There was no commercial market at all for, for chickens. But in a sort of reverse sense, they were, they did play a dominant role in home consumption. Right. And that might uh, be one of the big surprises, I think, for readers um, in U.S. and Canadian history um, that you uh, you show in this book that chickens, uh, there, were, there wasn't a commercial market for chickens in North America until the 19th century. That's right, until well into the 19th century, uh, before, say, again, there's so little documentation on a lot of this because mm-hmm. nobody valued them. Mm-hmm. 
but it, 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 in, in the States, uh, it seems that before, say, 1925, there was literally no market for anything except maybe feathers for pillows. Mm. So these are just birds that uh, roamed around picking at food, scraps thrown out for them, and were used um, for consumption on the, on the home. Um, of course, mainly on farms, but in cities too. Well, maybe we can talk then about the the central issue in the book. The book is called Art and Science in Breeding, and it focuses on uh, the breeding of chickens um, uh, and its history from craft breeding to genetic breeding. So maybe if you give us a sense of, of what craft breeding is uh, and even what genetic breeding is. Yeah, so that's kind of a... a <laughs> Gets at the core breeding. of the book. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Uh, craft breeding is the term that ge is generally applied to breeding ideas that evolved have evolved over time from experience, mm -hmm. and it is usually contrasted to what's seen as in quotes uh, educated or scientific breeding. I don't really like the term because it it implies that if you are a breeder just by experience or knowledge gained from the past that you're a poor breeder, mm -hmm. and that's just not the case. And it, but it seems to have become a traditional way in academic writing to distinguish traditional breeding from scientific breeding, which is, is even if you don't want to say scientific breeding is superior, it's certainly modern, and it's seen as, as a more empirical way to breed. The mm. traditional way is seen as kind of uh, just uh, based on feelings, um, word of mouth, um, ideas that evolve out of tradition that aren't based on anything, um, just the kind of way people looked at animals and disease, for example, in the late 19th century um, in Canada, people thought cattle got anthrax because a white fox went across the field. Mm -hmm. That sort of thinking is implied by craft breeding. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, um, craft breeding was very sophisticated, and many of the ideas that were later touted as being scientific were just as much part of craft breeding as they were scientific breeding. And one of the difficulties in studying breeding from the point of view of, I, I prefer the word traditional, although I did use the word craft in that book, Mm -hmm. um, traditional breeding versus scientific breeding is that there's a great deal of overlap in attitudes and the scientific approach it's as if the scientists found a lot of these ideas relatively new mm -hmm. and so they adopted them as being scientific and then went back and told breeders that they should be doing this and the breeders as a result were puzzled because to them scientists were saying the same thing only in different words. Mm -hmm. So what was new about it? That went on for a long time. And you find often that, that both of them, if they choose to express how breeding should proceed, and sometimes they didn't, mm -hmm. but if they did, they'd use terms like um, pick the best for breeding purposes. Mm -hmm. But what's the best mean? It means different things to different people. You want something that's more beautiful, do you want something that has a certain color? Are you interested in the animal because it has produced terrific offspring? Mm -hmm. Or are you interested in the animal because it's great-grandfather want a show? So what does the best mean? And this kind of language goes on and on through the farm press and through a lot of stuff that early geneticists said when they chose to deal with farm breeding, which they often didn't. 
And you make the case, too, that um, many of the practices that are identified as genetic and scientific practices, even into the late 20th century, in many ways replicated uh, early 19th century and even 18th century traditional breeding methodologies? Absolutely. And then there, there's see what the, the, the so-called craft breeding or tradi traditional breeding changed over the 19th century as a result of an input of structures that came from thoroughbred horse breeding and purebred breeding. Mm. And in the process, changed some fundamental outlooks that had not been there in the 18th century. In the Enlightenment period, breeding followed a, a much more um, path, a path that was much closer to what the scientists thought. Yeah. That had sort of it had sort of deviated over the 19th century. Now the good breeders, and there aren't that many of them ever, did not deviate. Mm -hmm. But the general population that bred purebred dogs, purebred horses, whatever, followed a lot of the sort of philosophy that came out of 16th century breeding, horse breeding, which talked about things like purity, um, stamping purity. Ancestry breeding, mm -hmm. interested in the past, all, it, all of these ideas were not indigenous to the best breeders of the 18th century. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole lot of stuff that interplays with this um, and makes it look as if the scientists actually have introduced ideas that were entirely new. Right. In a sense, they reintroduced right. ideas. I wondered, too, as I got to the end of the book, whether the uh, late 18th century and early 19th century traditional breeding methodologies were uncovering principles of Mendelian genetics that wouldn't be known to science, but uncovering them through practice, discovering the reappearance of recessive traits, for example, yes. down the yes. line. Yes, they, absolutely. I mean, they, they were aware, I mean, they didn't obviously know anything about the Mendelian genetics. Mm -hmm. Or, or the factors that drive it, but they certainly knew the outcome of it, mm -hmm. uh, and they and they certainly knew they were working with it. I mean, there was some one of the really interesting uh, <clears throat> documents I read was uh, a report of the British Horse Commission on horse breeding in 1890. So it was just pre-Mendelism, mm -hmm. and talking to breeders, and they talk constantly. They call it the they had a name for it too. This reversion to type. Mm -hmm. which is basically the, the return of recessive traits. They were fully aware of all of that. Reversion um, to type, yeah. Reversion to type or, or um, uh, characteristics cropping up four or five generations later that hadn't been seen for a long time. Yeah. That kind of thing. Um, so, I mean, they didn't use the same words, but they described Mendelian genetics. So... Uh, how did uh, chicken breeding emerge and change in North America as a practice in the 19th century? What were some of the major highlights uh, during that 100-year uh, period? Well, I, I guess I, I, uh, I would say that there are two critical factors that redirected attitudes to chicken breeding, um, say, after 1850 mm -hmm. and on. And first um, was the rise of basically a show competition structure that fueled the need for diversified genetics. If you're going to win at these shows, you needed more glamorous birds all the time. Mm -hmm. and, and this encouraged um, direct importation from the East. And uh, this situation went on in North America, and it went on concurrently in, in Europe, particularly Britain. There wasn't a lot of importation to North America from Europe. Mm 
it, it, all of these people were importing from places like Vietnam, Southeast mm. Asia. So that changed the attitude towards breeding chickens away from simply having them running around for food now and then and breeding them for cockfights. Mm. And the second thing that happened was uh, a real market developed for commercial products. And uh, this was predominantly for eggs. So there was a driver to have chickens in the first place because it was a market for them. And there was a driver around a show competition system, which resulted in a structure which supported how to breed, what to breed, how breeds differed from each other, what good uh, representatives of a breed might look like, and so on. Mm -hmm. So it's those factors that just shifted the whole thing and made brought chickens to the forefront. But it did not shift commercial production in terms of gender. And this was transnational in North America between Canada and the United States? It was transnational and very much transnational in that the organization that developed um, by 18, the early 1870s just to run the structure of all of this was the American uh, Poultry Association, and it was actually founded by Canadians and Americans hmm. together. So American meant North Americans throughout this period. So during this period, how did, uh, I guess, various ideas of beauty and ideas of utility influence practices of chicken breeding? Well, the, the, the way the dual impetus to the rise of the chicken industry um, became intertwined with each other in such, a, in such a way that beauty became inseparable from utility because mm. of the functioning of the American Breeders uh, Association and its driving purpose towards shows, the fact that there was a market for eggs meant that the two became inseparable. And the structure that actually supported the show system became the structure that supported the breeding system, the breeding system for markets. This is the now, ROP? The, yeah, well, that. Well, I, I, I sort of felt, yes, the ROP, but I sort of thought of that as more something that was state-driven mm. um, than the utility beauty ideas. Now, the state-driven part of the ROP um, certainly enforced the, the linkage of beauty and utility with each other. Mm -hmm. This beauty-utility show structure um, dominated all livestock production in the 19th century. We, we need to point that out. It's not that chickens were unique in this situation, but it was much more dramatic mm -hmm. um, in chickens than, than in any other uh, livestock, um, the, the divergent views about beauty and uh, utility. And the American Poultry Association was the dominant breeding organization in both Canada and the United States, and it basically refused to change its ideas, and in the end that brought about its demise. And I think this would be one of the most surprising aspects of the book for 21st century readers to learn that Chicken beauty was a significant, uh, I guess, component of the evaluation of good breeding. And you've got wonderful illustrations in this book of different types, and uh, and I guess these illustrations were used as guides uh, to achieving. Um, I guess it's the American Poultry Association to find a standard of perfection. Mm -hmm. Standard of perfection, which set out um, for each. Well, they call them varieties. We might call them breeds. Um, what each breed should look like, and they had a point structure. So, so many points would be given to the shape of the body. So many points would be given to the color of the feathers. 
so many points would be given to the legs and and and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it varied with each breed what it was. And when they went into the shows, um, and this is extremely different from purebred breeding, standard bred breeding is quite different. Um, the ju- the birds were judged on the percent that they managed to meet these points. In other words, supposing 30 points went to body type. And the judge looks at this particular bird and says, you deserve 22 points out of 30 for body. Mm-hmm. And you deserve, so, and then you add it all up. So it, it ends up being something like the bird gets 96 points out of 100, 80 points out of 100. And the winning bird is simply the bird that has the highest number of points. So that's why, and dog breeding actually follows this a little. People don't, the dog breeding is a mm-hmm. kind of confused mass of purebred and standard bred breeding. But that's why you can have best in show where, where you can have a chihuahua, say, against the Great Dane. Hmm. And, you know, you look at the two and you think, well, is the judge trying to decide that the, the Great Dane is a better looking dog than the chihuahua? No, what the judge is doing is deciding whether the Great Dane matches his standard, gets higher points on his standard than the Chihuahua does on his standards. So they could both be poor, really. But if the Great Dane, say, has 65 points against 100 and the Chihuahua has 68 points against mm-hmm. 100, then the Chihuahua wins. So it, it's a point system um, designed to say which how birds should look. And so they did endless drawings. I mean, they'd get artists to draw, draw the perfect bird, and then they'd put this as part of the standard of perfection, and they got nowhere mm-hmm. with that because nobody would agree. <laughs> right, and you have two images of, um, is it uh, Bard the, Rock? Bard from Plymouth Rock, and yeah. you can hardly tell the difference. Yeah, and there was a debate over which was the better version or which was the more accurate version of the perfect version of this bird. That's right. Yeah. Yep. So uh, as as chickens became, uh, I guess, more important as a commercial animal toward the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century for egg production, mm-hmm. uh, you outlined some of the ways in which the the state stepped in, and, and obviously before that. Uh, what role did uh, the f- uh, government in Canada and the United States play in shaping early chicken breeding practices? And we've already talked a little bit about the record of performance, the ROP. The ROP. Well, the earliest one was was uh, financially supporting chicken shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there we, we have supporting beauty. Now, they did this in other shows as well. This the, These shows were designed to teach farmers how to breed properly. And these would be that at exhibitions and fairs in Ex- exhibitions and, and fairs. Yeah. And or, uh, fairs and things that were that basically under the espouses of the American uh, Poultry Association. So they're... They're, they're kind of tying in behind the American Poultry Association and saying, yeah, we support what you do, so we'll fund this. Mm. So the winners will win. And at the beginning of the 20th century, um, they also supported uh, what were known as egg-link contests. Now, these developed in the 1890s in Britain. What, mm. They had a utility poultry club a little earlier. And then, by the way, the divergence of beauty and utility was even more extreme in Britain than North America where the beauty was just so far off the map, they, went, they were kind of marginalized. Hmm. So they had egg-laying contests. They were run by um, agricultural colleges, provincial state governments, and at the federal level, too. And the main reason that the government ran these was so that they could get these birds into um, 
the same environment, so every, all birds are fed the same way, etc. Mm-hmm. And you can stop false results. And uh, false results and, and, and twisted results plagued the American uh, egg-laying contest. Mm. So that's the next thing they did. Well, then the logical thing is to link those two together, which is what uh, evolved in Canada first under what was known as the Record of Performance, that's the ROP, and it was invented uh, in 1919. It was proposed by um, William Graham at, from the Ontario Agricultural College. Mm-hmm. And basically, it meant that certain hens would be recorded in a book if they laid a set number of eggs, it was usually something like 220 a year, mm. and if they qualified under the standards of the American Poultry Association. So the ROP, or the ROP, basically puts utility and beauty inseparably together. They're now linked by the state. Um, The ROP uh, was taken from Canada to the United States. It it tended to be more state-driven in the states compared to Canada um, because they, for, well, a number of reasons, they were worried about um, recording uh, of egg-laying contests, there wasn't an ROP federally in the U.S. until 1930, and there was a lot of opposition to it. Uh, and I think fundamentally because it was a much more robust scene in this period by the 20s mm. uh, in genetic research. And good breeders objected to the ROP because they thought it promoted poor breeding habits, such as breeding by individual worth. That means picking an individual hen and not looking at what her siblings might have looked like or what her cousins or what her family looked like, and also breeding by ancestry. And that means that you would buy ROP birds since they Mm. produced, uh, you want them. So that's looking back as opposed to what is known as the progeny test, which is using an animal for breeding because it has produced known good quality animals. Mm. And uh, Ancestry breeding and individual worth are problems indigenous to standard bred breeding and purebred breeding. They are not the way the 18th century breeders bred, and they are not the way the best poultry breeders in the 19th century bred either. Hmm. And they are not the way any geneticist would say uh, something should be bred. So the result of this is that with the opposition to the ROP, which in, in became stronger in the 30s, just actually as the federal system was set up in the U.S. Hmm. Um, There was less knowledge about how to breed. And you find when you look at the poultry press that by 1930, there's virtually nothing on how to breed. Hmm. So it became kind of a hidden thing. And I think it created a sort of a vacuum. People didn't know anything about breeding anymore because the ROP was looked at as a breeding method, Mm -hmm. which, of course, it wasn't. It was just a a record. Mm -hmm. But it was seen as how you breed. You breed by the ROP. So it left a kind of a vacuum, which didn't hurt when it came to uh, more robust views emanating out of the genetic uh, sector. Well, let's uh, maybe shift gears to talk about the uh, genetic sector of breeding and what was happening, uh, I guess, toward the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century in the emergence of um, genetics and genetic breeding. What affected uh, genetics uh, and evolutionary sciences and the development of Mendelian genetics uh, have on chicken breeding in the period before the First World War? Or, sorry, Second World War. Second World War. Well... 
um, Mendelian genetics and studies in Mendelian genetics, this is after 1900, by the way, mm-hmm. um, uh, tended to, to focus on experiments that would reveal the functioning of dominant and recessive characteristics. Mm-hmm. And there was lots of debate about whether change uh, was a result of mutation when this happened or not. And this, of course, all ties in with whether you support Darwinism or you don't support Darwinism and evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the experiments that were done by the early Mendelians basically revolved around what experiments had been done in the 18th century on plant breeding, um, which relied on crossing, cross-breeding, basically, and looking for what results you get. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what this does or introduces to the farming world is something that's very profound. And it it is an outlook which says that you breed for improvement along lines that do not produce progeny that you can use in breeding. In other words, all agricultural breeding for hundreds of years and probably thousands of years revolved around the idea that you take stock, a line of stock, and you breed it to improve it. Mm-hmm. So you buy stock or acquire it. This would, this applies to plants as well. And you hope to breed better of that line in the next generation. Mm-hmm. The scientists weren't interested in improvement in terms of, of making things better. They were interested in, in demonstrating how hereditary worked. And a good way to do that is to crossbreed. Mm-hmm. And you do get progeny that is different than the parents. But you also get something else often and it's known as hybrid vigor. It got the scientific name of heterosis a little later. Mm-hmm. But hybrid vigor is progeny that often is better than either of the parents. And this is good, obviously, but it's all over the map. You get progeny that's worse than the parents. Mm-hmm. But what you do get definitely is progeny that will not breed truly. So that if you get progeny that's better than the parents, you cannot use them for breeding. You will not get the same results. Hmm. Now, so you only hybrid, get the, those results of heterosis from the crossbreed, and then you they only don't get the results, results of heterosis from the crossbreeding. Hmm. That's right, and that breeders had known that, for, well, at least back to Roman times. This is mm-hmm. not something that was unknown, mm-hmm. but they didn't like it because you couldn't use the progeny for breeding, and they believed that you should breed for lines that breed truly. That's that's just a standard view about how farm breeding should proceed. Now, would that view would that view emerge from a sort of practical perspective that a farmer could acquire a bird that bred truly and then have highly productive animals for at least a few generations? That's exactly what it meant. And it mm. also meant that the farmer was a breeder. Right. <laughs> Instead of a and consumer just of, of the birds. Otherwise, the farmer is a consumer hmm. of the breeder's product. Because if you do have this superior progeny, um, and it won't breed truly, and you're a farmer, well, what does that mean? Hmm. It means you've got to go back to the breeder for the next generation. Mm-hmm. And now when when the geneticists decided that they should look at this jump forward in hybrid vigor as a way to increase farm production, and they went through all kinds of arguments about whether um, hybrid vigor resulted from mutation or whatever, and that was kind of a gain back with Darwinism. But mm-hmm. once they got their minds around the idea that uh, hybrid vigor did lead to better production of the end result, the terminal cross, mm-hmm. they thought that that was a sensible way for farmers to breed. Fine, that's okay. 
mm-hmm. it's not going to work unless the farmers agree that they are no longer breeders mm-hmm. and that they are consumers. Mm-hmm. And they manage, the, the geneticists managed to convince farmers of this in relation to corn in the 1930s in the Midwest and the U.S. And now, was, I think this is one of the most interesting twists in the story that you tell in the book, that the major changes to chicken breeding in the 20th century begin with corn breeders. Absolutely. And the corn breeders, because they managed to make it work, and it didn't come easily, uh, but they were prepared to invest in it in the hope that it would work, uh, they did manage to convince uh, Midwestern farmers um, to not collect seeds of corn for next year's crop, mm-hmm. but go back to them and buy the corn. And it's those companies that actually began to invest in experiments with chicken breeding, the, and it's all egg-laying. Um, it is the corn companies mm-hmm. that are the chicken breeders. And so the, and the gambit was that breeding method for corn could be applied to chickens. Chick- and That's the right. market could be restructured in the way that corn. Exactly. Exactly. Incredibly surprising. And this begins in the 1930s? Uh, it begins in the 1930s. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the corn breeding, um, and there's a lot of talk, it's interesting, in the poultry press about corn breeding. Mm-hmm. And, and the, in, say, in the 20s, when it's still being experimented with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and geneticists, working at agricultural stations saying, you know, this really could work with chickens too. Um, but then this is pre the corn companies themselves. Yeah. And the USDA, the early geneticists actually did not think this system worked very well. And there was research that did support uh, better corn breeding along the lines of lines that pre- produced truly. And there was evidence that it would have worked just as well. Mm-hmm. And there are, uh, there's quite a bit of academic discussion around the fact that the USDA kind of deep-fixed that ex- type of experimentation and supported mm. the hybrid breeding type of research. Mm. Um, and so, and actually, I've just, I've just been reading an article. I, 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 I've written an article for another book, which is a composite of, of genetics and agriculture, and I, I was just reviewing one on uh, plant breeding in this period, and the use of x-rays, which is interesting, huh. to encourage mutation. See, they were still in this idea that the way you improve is, is, to, is to cause mutation. Huh. It's the same sort of idea of hybrid breeding or heterosis breeding. Like, mm-hmm. this will, like You can step this thing up really fast if you do it this way. Like It would take you 20 generations to do what you could do with x-rays. <laughs> So uh, where do the commercial hatcheries come into play uh, in this uh, transformation of breeding practices in the 20th century in North America? Well, the chicken industry, as it's, I mean, when you say the chicken industry, mm-hmm. by the mid-20th century, we have to talk about two industries that make up the chicken industry, mm-hmm. the producing end and the breeding end. And they become completely separate from each other. Mm-hmm. And the hatcheries uh, play a role in this. The hatcheries resulted from uh, incubation technology um, around the the turn of the century, which allowed eggs to be hatched not by sitting hens. You could put them in incubators, and they would hatch. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that was vital uh, was when it was realized that baby chicks didn't have to be fed for at least 72 hours after they were hatched. Which and and they would survive fine without it. <laughs> so that meant that you could box them and ship them long distances. 
that was critical. So the chicks fact, just become a commodity that can be dropped on a railway car and shipped across and the continent. Went, exactly. Hmm. Or a truck. And later okay. a plane. And now a plane. Uh, uh, so that was important. And, and as, as the incubators became more sophisticated, say by 1910, you could incubate as many as 20,000 chicks in one go. Wow. Um, that encouraged um, the producers Again, we started back. Remember, we started back with the breeders mm-hmm. and the producers being women and the breeders are men. Mm-hmm. So there's and, and producers and the idea that producers don't breed. You know, we started with that, too. Mm-hmm. Well, the hatcheries encourage that that division. They encourage non-breeding producers by the fact that the producer can go to the hatchery, get a day old chick and not breed. And you can get the benefits and of they the don't genetics need from either. the breeder without having to do the work. So, so you you don't you know you basically abdicated any any responsibility for breeding mm-hmm. or hatching chicks too. Mm-hmm. You just go to the hatchery and you buy your chicks, you bring them home. And I, the shipping part was very interesting. That um, you know practices of breeding that are taking place in Ontario could have an effect on production of birds all the way to California. Yep. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It, and and did. Mm-hmm. And and um, uh, British Columbia was a major exporter of genetics uh, throughout North America, actually, in mm-hmm. the twenties, leghorn mm-hmm. uh, chicks. So and then the problem is the early hatcherymen were actually breeders, and it started as a kind of a breeding hatchery type of operation. The breeders owned small hatcheries and hatched their own day-old chicks and then sold them. But as the ha- as the hatcheries got bigger and it required a different type of management. The hatcherymen became less involved um, with breeding and relied on the breeders to supply uh, what they needed. And then you get a kind of a pyramid that develops, mm. which is the primary breeder, which produces the genetics that ultimately are going into all of this. Mm-hmm. He sells the primary breeder sells the genetic material to what's known as a multiplier, and the multiplier then takes that genetics and basically multiplies it. So you've got hundreds of thousands of eggs, not just, say, 100 eggs. Mm-hmm. Then the multiplier sells those eggs uh, to the hatchery, and the hatchery then hatches them and sells them to the producer. In the early years, when the hatcheries were big, the hatcherymen actually stood in a very important position between the two groups, and they could actually direct how breeding proceeded by telling the multipliers what they would buy, which then the multipliers would go back to the breeders. So they could, and they mm-hmm. wanted ROP birds. So that reinforced government structured birds. Right. Um, but then when the situation changed in terms of the producing end, which is fundamentally integration of the industry, mm-hmm. uh, right through to um, the stores where you buy the birds, whatever they are, or the eggs. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the the when the producers started to take over the hatcheries, then the hatcheries had no control over breeding at all. But so and and by then you've got a complete division. The producing at the producing end, they have nothing to do with breeding anymore. Mm-hmm. And 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 as these hybrid chicks that the companies were starting to produce in the early 40s. Uh, were bought up by the hatcheries, and the, and sometimes the breeders actually enfranchised hatcheries and said, you can sell my chicks and another hatchery. You can't. Mm-hmm. Then you found that the producers liked the results because it, there was hybrid vigor bred into these birds mm-hmm. and demanded them. Mm-hmm. So the product was, every, was highly desirable. Going, 
They were going back every year for chicks anyway, so what do they care? Yeah. They weren't breeding them. Yeah. So the, they ha- the, the, the chicken industry, and this is one of the reasons this type of breeding failed in other livestock industries, the chicken industry became early fractured between a breeding section and, and a producing section, and that was not true. Uh, in any other livestock industry, and that, and if you look at the dairy industry, it's still not true today. Hmm. Um, the producers play a major role in how breeding proceeds by providing records back to the studs, to the AI studs, artificial insemination studs. So it, it worked with poultry for various reasons, relating to technology and to relating to the way the industry was actually going anyway. Mm-hmm. So in other words, it's not so much a scientific revolution as a kind of social revolution on a number of levels. And you make the point, too, that a major change occurs in the mid-20th century uh, as a consequence of uh, the role that corporate capital played in shaping genetic breeding practices. Could you tell listeners a little bit about uh, uh, the role that corporations played in in reshaping uh, the chicken industry and, and breeding in North America? Well, it followed much along the same lines as, as with corn. When you breed for hybrid vigor, corn or chickens, uh, it's very expensive. Um, you have to experiment with a number of lines and many thousands of birds mm-hmm. because what you're trying to do basically is establish lines that will be breed truly to what you want. Mm-hmm. And then uh, fundamentally you would start with at least four lines. You could start with 80 and have experimental lines, and most of them did, actually. Wow. Um, so you're talking thousands and thousands of birds. It would take you at least five years to develop a line the way you want it. And this, so is, this a is a huge breeding investment. methodology? Um, well, the breeding methodology they kept secret, which we can come to that in a minute. Uh-huh. But basically, they had to establish lines by whatever method, and in the early years they used inbreeding. Mm-hmm. They don't now, and they didn't by, by the 50s. Um, you had to establish lines that when you crossed them, you would get a predictable result. Mm-hmm. See, the problem with uh, hybrid figure is you get everything all over the map. So you had to get these lines so that when they, they crossed, you would get a predictable result. It didn't matter that predictable result wouldn't breed truly. That didn't matter. Mm-hmm. But... If you didn't get a predictable result, you'd be selling birds that were all over the map. So in other words, like buying a crummy pair of shoes versus a good pair of shoes. <laughs> right. So so you have four lines. So you breed two to produce one result, two to produce another result, right? Mm-hmm. Then you cross those two resulting lines, and the result of that is what you're going to sell. That's the commercial product. So it's extremely expensive. It requires a lot of investment. It requires a lot of experimentation. It needs corporal funding to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the agricultural colleges couldn't afford it, and the government couldn't afford it, and certainly single breeders couldn't. I mean, the flocks were relatively small. They were, oh, gosh, they wouldn't have been much over 100 mm-hmm. at this stage of the game mm-hmm. when these guys are doing this. So it requires financially a lot of money because you have to quantify, and you're working for years with many, many birds. So it, it's a very cumbersome way to breed. It's not mm-hmm. a very logical way to breed. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the reason that these breeders wanted to do it and invest in it was because if they got this commodity the way they wanted it, they had a guaranteed market because the producers had to come back to them every year. Right. 
They, they couldn't not because they couldn't breed anymore. So they had to come back to them every year. Uh, and so you had a kind of a biological lock. You, you owned the genetic material. Nobody could get their hands on it. Now, this kind of answers my next question to some extent, though. Why the breeders, especially in the second half of the 20th century, kept their, the genetic breeders, kept their practices secret? Well, that in a, yes, yes, but it, it is actually a little bit of a different question. Mm. Because the breeding companies were competing with each other. Right. So you had to keep your breeding secret secret because the other company might get them and get ahead of you. So yeah. it's about a patent. It's about a company patent. Mm -hmm. It's a biological lock as far as the producers are concerned. In other words, they can't reproduce that from that material. Mm -hmm. uh, fine. So that's a biological lock. You keep it secret to keep it a patent from the other companies because um, the other companies, they're not interested in your end product in terms of breeding material because they, like you, know they can't get the re that result from that stuff. They need to get back to the parents and the grandparents' stock. That's what they need. They need those lines. Hmm. If you spent five years breeding, that's what they need if they're going to beat you. Hmm. And so if we you can, certainly don't tell them about that. If we can get back to the biological lock then for a second too, because there was, a, I guess, a strategy employed by these chicken breeders in the second half of the 20th century to only sell one sex of right. each product. Right. Uh, and that, in effect, prevents producers from trying to reproduce the birds yeah that was that it's interesting that because it's basically an american culture mm -hmm. uh and that was not practiced in europe and is not practiced anywhere else in the world today hmm. but breeding companies that sell in the u.s have to do that and uh, a lot of the of the uh, companies consider that kind of lottery genetics and in a way it brings the the uh, producer into the breeding end because they're making the decisions about what female they're going to buy versus what male they're going to buy, right? Mm -hmm. where, where the, when, you buy, when you buy a package, then all that testing has been done within the company itself. And it, it, it doesn't actually make a lot of sense in terms of biological locks in, uh, um, as far as, as the company is concerned. I think it's really more just a tradition, and it grew out of the way um, the Chicken of Tomorrow contest, which is what really brought the broiler industry on, evolved. The way the awards were given mm -hmm. um, to male and female, it, it, it's that culture that separated it. And, and when you go to the breeders today, the commercial breeders today, um, they don't really know. I suspected the Chicken of Tomorrow contest, and they, they confirm it by basically suspecting the same thing. Well, maybe but we can we can really talk known. about that contest as a major event in in uh, the chicken industry in the 20th century. Um, what what role did consumer behavior play in the uh, 20th century in terms of changing the chicken meat or broiler industry? Well, I think that in a sense, it's it's more that the industry changed, <laughs> which allowed the consumers to consume more. Um, the the consumers didn't really couldn't there wasn't a much of chicken meat around for various reasons uh, chicken meat is perishable mm -hmm. hard to uh, transport um, so chicken meat, meat wasn't a major component of Canadian none. and American diets there was the... no market none there was no commercial market a viable commercial market for chicken meat in either country uh, until the beginnings of a sort of a broiler industry um, start um, in basically Delaware, Maryland, and uh, 
Virginia, Delmarva, that area was known as. And what happened was actually there's a woman that is credited with starting the broiler industry in 1923. Mm-hmm. She bought uh, some leghorn pullets, that's young chicks, female chicks. Mm-hmm. And, and she thought, you know, I'm not going to raise these birds for egg laying. I'm going to fatten them and sell them on the market, which she did and made money on it. And, mm-hmm. and people in that area began uh, to do the same thing. And what they were doing was supplying the seaboard cities of New York and Boston and Baltimore. Um, there was a market there. This was a, enough of a market to warrant people raising birds for meat. And when mm-hmm. they started to do it, of course, they were raising egg-laying type birds. But by the 30s, there were people that it reverted back to crossbreeding, which was the standard 19th century way to breed mm-hmm. uh, for meat. Um, and selling these crossbred chicks um, to local hatcheries um, and putting those on the market. In Canada, even big cities like Toronto and Montreal, it was not big enough to really develop a commercial industry in the raising of meat birds, in the, in, well, into the 40s. So prior to the like 1940s, it. most birds were being raised for eggs. Right. And what came on the market were males that nobody wanted for breeding, mm-hmm. They were normally raised to be adults, and they were capons. And and people that did that had a very specialized market. They would sell to the end um, end consumer, meaning a hotel mm-hmm. um, or a hospital or a, a, some sort of institution. So you would find people, say, in a radius of the city of Toronto that are definitely raising capons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they might have got them because nobody wanted male chicks and other issues, sexing and so on, that went on because nobody wanted them because it was all directed at the, at the egg industry and males don't lay eggs. Right. Uh, but you couldn't stop the fact that 50% of the chicks were going to be male. Right. Um, and sometimes even the feed companies used to give feed <laughs> to way to people that would raise these male chicks and then sell them as meat. But if you did that, then you'd contract to the end person yeah. who was going to buy your product. And the other um, avenue of meat was what was known as spent hens. Mm-hmm. And these were hens that had finished their egg-laying days, and, and, and there would be a flood of chicken meat on the market in the fall when the ch- these hens had stopped laying. Mm-hmm. So, so it was a seasonal thing, mm-hmm. um, and it was very much um, <clears throat> still a localized thing. Uh, also, the birds went through a complicated country store system, as did eggs and butter. And this is all tied up with women again and the marketing uh, marketing and the fact that women were the producers and barter trade. So, you you know, the woman would take the, the chicken in mm-hmm. to the country store, barter that for something else. It was a very complicated, unsophisticated system that brought meat to the market, certainly throughout Canada and in the U.S. also, except in this Delmarva area mm-hmm. and the major seaboard cities. But Before the chicken of tomorrow contest. This begins to change in the 1940s. It begins to change, yeah. Okay. Uh, it has changed in the U.S. definitely by the 40s, not yeah. so much in Canada. So what was the Chicken of Tomorrow contest? The Chicken of Tomorrow contest was promoted by A&P, Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company. Mm-hmm, which might who, be familiar to listeners who we, yeah, might yeah, remember the came, grocery stores. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The grocery stores A&P. Yeah. Well, they... Uh, felt that there really was a market for chicken meat if we could just get this thing better organized and if we could get better quality meat on the market or more uniform quality meat on the market. Mm-hmm. that the Consumers would buy it mm-hmm. uh, if we could get the price down too. 
And they decided, uh, the president of the company thought it would be a real boon if they could just teach the breeders what was actually marketable. Then they would breed it. So they had a contest, uh, and, and with the help of the USDA and different state organizations, uh, and running between about 1948 and 1951, there were a number of them, and they were state and locally organized, where breeders would supply the eggs, the eggs would be hatched and raised in, in uniform places and fed uniformly. And basically, the contest was over the carcasses. When the birds were slaughtered, what were they like? Mm-hmm. Who won? Mm-hmm. And of course, what they wanted was a bigger breast on the bird and better meat on the legs and mm-hmm. so on. And the winners of the contest, and they also did it um, by sex, mm-hmm. and they did it also by standard bred breeding and crossbreeding. So the winners of the contest were shot into international fame, and this is the beginning of these broiler companies. And they were normally crossbreeding, which was the standard way to breed for meat anyway, and nothing knew about that. But they were breeding on a more sophisticated basis of lines, again, true breeding lines that would consistently produce progeny that was better. Now, the companies that were doing this were all located in the United States. There's nobody in Canada breeding for broilers. This is, mm-hmm. you know, early 50s. Mm-hmm. And then you find how this whole hatchery producer thing comes into play. The producers liked these better birds logically because they were they fattened better they fattened more quickly they were um, they were uh, better at converting food into meat than any of these ROP birds that the, the Canadian breeders insisted on breeding so they demanded this type of progeny so the result is of course a lot of the broilers that came into Canada were American and the American companies branch plants planted into Canada, and that's just the beginning of a, a huge international revolution as far as chicken breeding and broiler industry is concerned. And that importing of um, broiler birds from the United States became an anxiety for Canadian chicken producers in the 1970s? Yes. Uh, well, uh, 50s. <clears throat> oh, as early as the 50s? Oh, yeah. Okay. The, oh, yeah. By the late 50s, um, they were here. They so were in the... by the 1970s, though, the Canadian government intervened. Uh, and uh, introduced a uh, supply management system. Yeah, now that's that's a little bit different. Okay. Um, earlier, um, the Canadian government <laughs> actually did uh, try and introduce some of this this hybrid breeding idea into Canada, and and try to buy genetics that would support that type of breeding. Well, again, one, it's financially extremely expensive, and in the Canadian situation, the ROP was so deeply embedded in, in their thinking that, uh, and, and when I talk to government geneticists today who are elderly but were in this period in the 60s, mm-hmm. and the, or late 50s and 60s when the federal government was involved in this, um, claim that the Canadian breeders just refused to do it. They just refused to adopt these new ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, so what happened was sort of logical. I mean, the, the better meat-producing birds came from the U.S., so they came. Mm-hmm. Um, what you're talking about, management supply, um, that came more as a result, that too, but also uh, massive importation of things like eggs. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's a, a consumer, um, it, it's what the consumer was buying, like chicken meat, not, not what the producer was raising, so much as the actual bird that you put on the table and ate. Um, 
there was a flood of that kind of thing going on um, by the late 60s, and uh, the uh, management supply system was set up in Canada to, to try to keep some uh, production here in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, so that there were Canadian producers. They may have been buying American genetics, mm-hmm. but there were Canadian producers actually feeding the birds and bringing them to market. Right, and this was introduced through the Farm Products Marketing Agencies Act in 1972? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it is uh, a method that is used to um, control marketing to maintain farming levels. I mean, it's different mm-hmm. types of it exist. I mean, all the productive, protective agencies that we see around the world, the huge American protection of their farming, uh, the EU's protection of their farming, it's part mm-hmm. of the same story, really. Now, the U.S. Uh, sort of um, tried to play ideas about farm management, and it never succeeded in terms mm-hmm. of wheat under the Kennedy administration. But uh, that was that was set up to try to maintain a some level of, of chicken farming, not breeding necessarily, farming. Farming, yeah. In in Canada. You, um uh, so that this? in other words, they didn't you know, the, the the supermarkets didn't, you know, import birds ready to put on your table to cook. Mm-hmm. So that's what it was more about that than American genetics. Do you see this um, supply management and marketing system in Canada as leading to any kind of divergence between the Canadian and U.S. chicken industries in terms of the way chickens are raised? Um, It has, historically speaking, been quite different. I hear noises today that the difference isn't as great as certainly some of the chicken farmers or the government in Canada would like to think. Mm. But uh, basically, if and studies have been done uh, up until recently. The chicken farmer in Canada actually makes more money uh, relative to his American counterpart. Right. You write um, that the chicken farmer in Canada makes uh, somewhere near 30% of the value of the bird? Uh, yeah. And whereas and the American, American farmer makes five. Yeah. yeah. So th- there's, but uh, chicken farmers in Canada today, and I've talked to some of them, Mm-hmm. Don't think that that's quite right. Mm. So, you know, with numbers, you don't know um, what's produced, and farmers traditionally think things are going down, down mm-hmm. the tube anyway. But um, basically, with the farm management situation, um, <clears throat> and if you talk to the producers, they hate it mm. because the producers, basically, they argue that the chicken farmers tell them what they're going to buy, mm-hmm. the volume they're going to buy, and mm-hmm. what it's going to cost. Mm-hmm. So the producers feel they don't have any control over what they need. They're ordered to buy this, and mm-hmm. they have to, mm-hmm. um, which guarantees that the, the, the chicken farmers are going to um, be able to sell their product. But there are other, there, which is not true in the States, mm-hmm. but there are other differences, uh, which in a sense are more subtle. In the U.S., because of the integration of the broiler industry, and now we're talking about broiler, we're talking about chicken farmers of Canada, by the way. We're not talking about right. eggs, we're talking about meat. Right. We're talking about the broiler industry. Uh, the companies that produce meat are integrated companies worldwide, and there are very few of them, most of them American. Um, and they basically do everything except produce the genetics. It's kind of interesting. The breeding companies, and there are only about three in the world that produce all the genetics of all the meat we eat. Um, are completely separate from the rest of the industry. Uh-huh. And the, so what the integrators do 
is buy the genetics from the breeder. In the States, they have to buy from one company a male, from another company a female. Not true anywhere else. They buy the package. Mm-hmm. Um, then they take that genetics, and uh, the company's multipliers multiply it. The company's uh, hatcheries hatch it. Mm-hmm. And then what they do is hire a chicken farmer. They own the baby chicks. They own the feed company. They own the feed. Mm-hmm. They hire the farmer uh, to, at his cost, with his housing and so on, to house the baby chicks and feed the baby chicks and bring them to market when they're six weeks old. And out of that, the farmer gets a percentage of, of the selling value, and that's where you get in this 5 and 30%. Huh. In Canada... The chicken farmer, like his American counterpart, is ordered to buy certain genetics. So the breeding company sells to the integrator soiler company. Um, uh, but he owns the chicks. He has to buy the chicks. Mm-hmm. He just has no breeding say in anything. He can't say, well, I think I'll get chicks from this breeder rather than that breeder. Right. He can't do that. He's got to buy whatever he's told to buy. Right. He owns the chicks. And he basically sells them back to the integrator. And that's why the integrators don't like this, because they're told what they have to buy. Right. Um, I'm not sure. I think they buy the feed, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the thing uh, about the chicken farmers of Canada, which is sort of interesting, is that they are regulated, and they regulate themselves to quite a degree as to health and cleanliness, mm-hmm. uh, which is not true in other com- com- countries. And this is through the uh, the, codes of practice for the care and handling of poultry. Uh, Handling, uh, the veterinary profession is involved in this. And the breeders, of course, like this. Mm -hmm. Uh, The breeding companies like this because it it sort of um, makes their genetics look better. Because it assures that the environmental conditions of the birds are are optimal. That's right. Mm -hmm. Um, So... um, but I that you know again if you read the material that the chicken farmers of Canada pr- produce they mm-hmm. tell you of course lots about this the chicken farmers themselves would probably have a slightly different story you know right. because things are but the systems are quite different yeah and and in a say in a sense they dovetail with quota ideas ideas in the dairy industry how yeah. these things are going to play themselves out in the near future yeah kind of interesting and you, but you, right now they, that, that's the situation you seem to make the case too toward the end of the book that the quota system has a kind of effect on the conditions in which the birds are raised you write that farmers have no reason to overcrowd their barns right. in yeah. order to get good yeah. returns because supply management guarantees them a satisfactory yeah. income that's right yeah i mean it all kind of works it's just that it's a kind of a awkward marketing system in terms mm-hmm. of free marketing and, and um, Americans hate it. Right, uh, and it's being challenged it in, inter- through inter- inter- uh, NAFTA. Yeah, well, it, and it interferes with their export mm-hmm. ideas. You know? mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and another result is that Canadians pay more for chicken meat when they go to the market. Right. And American, their American counterparts do. Right. But I think we pay so little for our food. I think that's one of the major problems with agriculture is that you know, farmers are, are made to produce more and more and more, and then, of course, the price goes down and down and down. Consumer wins, I guess, but a lot of other things pay the price, including the animals. Sure, and uh, questions about health, too, associated with food supply. and, and uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's lots, of, lots of stuff entangled with it, and, and um, 
lots of stuff around animal rights entangled within it, far stronger in Europe mm -hmm. uh, than in North America. Well, maybe we can pull back now a little bit to wrap up, uh, and I can ask you about what broadly this history of chicken breeding reveals about the changing relationship between humans and domestic animals in the 19th and 20th centuries. Has our relationship with the chicken fundamentally changed? Uh, it has most definitely, um, and uh, perhaps for one simple reason the volume of chickens that, uh, that um, farmers deal with. I mean, now a chicken farmer today would, would have a flock of oh, several hundred thousand mm -hmm. uh, and would house them for six weeks and sell them. I don't know that you'd really get too close to them or understand them, and you're not breeding them. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have no input into, into what, what they are. Um, and it's interesting when you look at uh, the farm press and at the poultry press. Um, at the end of the 19th century and, you know, up to 1920, Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, comments are much warmer. People loved the chickens. And, I mean, especially women were very sentimental about it, even though they were the producers. They often wrote in about not so much the financial advantage or, or the food advantage to their family, but how much they just enjoyed the birds uh, and loved watching their behavior and how they acted and so on. And certainly the breeders in that period felt the same way. And good breeders do have a feel for the individual animals. Mm -hmm. uh, even if they are working with individual animals within families and over generations, mm -hmm. um, they have, and that's where this sort of art comes in. There, there are features about good breeders that you can't teach, and it, it, you learn, or they are, they become good breeders because of their love of the animals. Mm -hmm. And and even in the commercial industry today, the commercial breeders, uh, they're of course dealing again with hundreds of thousands of birds. I have had. Um, geneticists say that the people that are actually out there handling the birds and making the decisions about who is going to breed, um, they listen to them. Um, if, if, if they say to the geneticist, this bird is not going to work, they'll get rid of it. Mm -hmm. In other words, the same sense that you have to have a feel for the birds. The splitting of the, of the breeding from the producing end mm -hmm. has pretty much scotched a lot of that. Um, and uh, this is true, really, of, of all livestock today. Um, you know, we breed and use them in, in, in such enormous numbers, and there is a tendency to separate the breeding from the producing end. Mm -hmm. Although I don't think you'd find that, say, in the dairy industry still, even though you might be milking 60 to 100 cows, mm -hmm. certainly in Canada. Uh, it, they, now, they, they certainly like this idea, what, what they call factory farming. This was really big in 1900. I mean, they promoted this heavily, even though it wasn't around. Um, and uh, factory animal husbandry, if you like. And there were the mm -hmm. odd producers where they called them poultry ranches. This would be around Ontario where, and these would be men. It was always men that went into this in a big way. Women had these small flocks. Um, so they, 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 they gave lip service. They thought it was a terrific idea, even though it wasn't very common. But by the, by the late 30s, people like William Graham, or had, who had spent their life poultry breeding, and he's the main one at the Ontario Agricultural College. He was there until the 1940s. He was increasingly worried about this kind of factory farming or factory chicken raising, raising versus farm chicken raising. And he, he felt it looked as if it was a way of the future, and he wasn't so sure it was a great idea. So it's kind of like a juggernaut. I could just, you know, 
we have changed in our attitude to animals. But there is some backlash to this. Mm -hmm. Witness the thriving animal rights sectors and the science research that goes into animal sentience and animal feelings, uh, the huge revolts that are going on in the way chickens are crated. Mm -hmm. uh, the whole veal industry is under an enormous attack, mm -hmm. in my opinion, rightly so. But um, that's less true here in North America, although there are signs that it's going to have to change because consumers don't like it. Well, and if you look at, uh, say, journalism in, in the dairy industry, modern journalism, they're mm -hmm. very aware of it. And they're mm -hmm. always telling farmers, look, you guys have got to listen to this, you know. Because these people buy your product, and if they don't like the way you're doing this, you're going to pay the penalty. So you better shape up and watch. I mean, how do, how do you dehorn your calves? Are you kind to them? Mm -hmm. Do you anesthetize them? You know, people want to know. Anybody could step onto your farm and see what you're doing. And this is one and of the major 21st century changes in terms of consumer knowledge and understanding about yes. the processes of... Huge. You know. and, it's, and, and so it, there are backlashes back and forth. But on the other hand, a lot of consumer understanding is poor, driven by emotion and not reality. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, here's a little example that I, I've experienced. Uh, you talk to vegetarians, right? Mm-hmm. Now, they say things to you like, I, well, I won't eat beef because I, I don't believe in killing animals. And I'll say, oh, but, but you do believe in eating protein. Oh, yes, yes, they believe in eating protein. So they eat cheese, of course, mm -hmm. uh, and they'll drink milk. And then I say, well, that's very interesting because where do you think that cheese and milk came from? Well, it came from a cow, I said. Well, I said, that's true. But it got to you because a baby calf had to die. Where do you think, why do you think the cow made the milk? Why do you think the cow made the milk to make the cheese? Because she had a baby. And the baby doesn't get the milk. You do. Mm -hmm. And they turn white. Action. <laughs> Shock. So there's a lot of ignorance about where our food actually comes from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, which is, so people might have, you know, really admirable ideas about why they believe in, in, in doing a certain thing, but it's often not really founded on good knowledge. Well, I think this book goes a long way to revealing a lot about uh, where we get chicken meat and where we get chicken eggs and a very complicated but important history. Um, the dissociation between farmers and breeding that occurred over the course of this history in the 19th and 20th centuries that you outline seems to be just the beginning of one of the major uh, implications of these transformations of, of breeding uh, in North American history. So I encourage listeners to pick up a copy of Art and Science in Breeding, Creating Better Chickens by Margaret Derry. And Margaret, I thank you for joining us and telling us more about your book. Well, thank you very much. Nature's Past is produced with support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Network in Canadian History and Environment, the Robarts Centre for Canadian Studies, and Canada's History Magazine. This episode was made by Andrew Watson, Stacey Nation Canapper, Margaret Derry, and me, Sean Karash. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. 
For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes page at niche-canada.org slash naturespast, where you can download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, and leave us comments. Please let us know what you think about the podcast, and don't forget to rate and review this podcast on our iTunes page. And you can follow Nature's Past on Twitter at twitter.com slash naturespast. If you'd like to send me some feedback, you can contact me through my website, seancourage.com. You can always get the latest information on events in the environmental history community in Canada from the Niche website at niche-canada.org, and you can find out more about the topics we discussed on this episode on our show notes page. To keep current with work in the field of environmental history, I encourage listeners to download our iOS app, which works on iPhone, iPod Touch, and the iPad. You can get the app at niche-canada.org slash envhist, that's E-N-V-H-I-S-T. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next month with another episode of Nature's Past.